Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. If you listen to this show regularly, you know I live in the United States. But crypto is global, and the pace of adoption and the variations in regulatory approaches around the world fascinate me. So in this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Chen-Ki Ong, who's head of policy for the APAC region, to discuss the latest in major markets across that region. We cover recent news like Hong Kong legalizing retail crypto trading, Japan's enthusiasm for Web3, and Singapore's approach to digital asset regulation. Chen-Ki also shares her observations from the recent Financial Action Task Force meeting that was held in Japan. Last thing before we jump in, if you weren't able to join me at Lynx Europe last month, then I have great news for you. The on-demand content from the event, including all new solution demos and the best talks from Amsterdam is now available. You can find the link in the show notes. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Public Key. This is your host, Ian Andrews. Today, we're gonna take a deep dive into policy topics across the Asia Pacific region. I'm joined by my colleague, Chengi Ong, who's our head of policy for APAC. Chengi, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ian, happy to be here. I'm excited for this one. We've actually had a number of guests recently from different countries across the APAC region. So we've gotten a bit of a flavor of the unusual landscape of policy in certain countries, Malaysia being one recently, Australia about six months ago, we had Caroline Baller, who was CEO of large Bitcoin exchange in the region. But I think it's going to be really interesting to go deeper. Maybe to start, crypto winter. Is it winter time? I know that uh, the seasons are reversed when we go below the equator. So is crypto <laughs> winter affecting affecting you in, in Asia? What are you seeing? Oh yeah, I think this is this is probably a bit of a global winter. I think you know APEC does span both the north and the southern hemispheres. But thank you for correcting my geography. I, <laughs> that was not a subject that I did well on. It's well. It's a global industry, right? So we're seeing sort of along the same lines as, as global trends, asset prices a little bit depressed from the peak. I mean, are there are there pockets of enthusiasm, optimism, activity, or is everything kind of universally depressed? Like paint a landscape for us. Well, look, I think suffice to say it's been a rough 12 months for the digital asset sector globally. Uh, Asia, I think, has been no exception. And really, you can see this across a variety of metrics, I would say. So you talked about token prices. They are what they are. But when we look at things like on-chain activity in terms of transaction volumes, web traffic to crypto websites, VC funding, uh, they've all taken a hit during this period. And I guess looking beyond the statistic, I mean, you get a lot of anecdotal evidence, you know, Companies quietly closing their doors, employee layoffs. I think statistics are not always great in this area, but uh, you know I'm based in Singapore, which is a small city state, but a base of operations for quite a lot of uh, international digital asset companies. And I saw one report that estimated something like 3,700 layoffs in the year leading up to February 2023, so 12 months, and just from crypto companies. That is that's quite a lot. So I think it's been certainly a challenging macroclimate. But just like you alluded to, I think if you look under the hood, it's a much more nuanced picture. There is still a robust base of activity across different parts of the blockchain ecosystem. There's lots of reasons to be optimistic in APAC. So the Chainalysis policy team, we were recently in several uh, APAC countries. We call it our APAC tour. 
Um, <laughs> but we were meeting with both public and private sector entities. And I think there was still a good amount of energy on the ground that was very encouraging. A lot of interesting activity with, say, Web3 interest from, from non-financial companies in Japan and Korea. We were in Australia, where two out of four major Australian banks have launched their own stable coins. So there really is still, I think, quite a good base of digital asset players just keeping their heads down and continuing to build their businesses. And there's a tenacity, I think, about that activity that is very encouraging. Well, it also seems like there's strong grassroots adoption. I mean, I think from our adoption index that we did last year, sort of half of the top 10 roughly came from the region. I imagine there's maybe been a little bit of a cooling of that, but I can't imagine that it's gone away entirely because the global financial system constraints, I think, was fueling a lot of that, like international trade or remittances or cross-border payments. Like that problem set hasn't really changed regardless of asset prices, right? The need for being able to move money between countries still exist pretty robustly, right? Yeah, exactly. I think there are conditions, there are real world drivers in APAC that really do underpin demand for digital assets across different parts of the ecosystem. Like whether you're considering digital assets as an asset class, like in investable assets where financial markets are still developing, or you're considering it as like a new form of financial market infrastructure, bypassing costly, slow cross-border payment rails to do remittances and cross-border payments more efficiently, or whether you think of it as the basis of a new mode of interaction and consumption with Web3. And I think the really interesting thing about APAC and and what can drive a lot of that optimism around the use cases for digital assets in, in the region really come down to a lot of the structural factors that are prominent in APAC. So like economically, it is the most dynamic region in the world and that points to, you know, growing trade and investment activity. And then demographics, if you think about that, demographics are really on Asia's side, right? Got a large, relatively young, digitally literate population and like crucially, I think, a, a growing middle class, which is expanding significantly faster than the rest of the world. And that brings in new sources of capital and investment and, and a search for new modes of consumption. And of course, financial systems in APAC really are at varying stages of development, varying levels of depth. Um, and in some cases, that financial infrastructure is still lagging behind these core and these like really burgeoning financial needs, including around things like remittances and, and cross-border payments for trade. Yeah, so, I think just on that last point, I mean, one of the things that amazed me was in Korea, which I had the opportunity to visit last year for the first time. You had two presidential candidates, so coming from, from both parties, and they each had a crypto-centric, pro-crypto part of their platform they were running on in a country where the widespread nature of crypto popularity sort of was a big surprise and very interesting to me. And would you put Korea as kind of the of the major countries in the region kind of at the forefront or do you see the landscape differently? Yeah, so Korea is really interesting. And and I think cross the aisle, I suppose, interest in, in crypto is something that we can really see when we're thinking about the legislation that they're moving through parliament and the, you know, the, the pace at which that's moving through parliament. But yeah, yeah, coming back to Korea and its characteristics, I think Korea is a really interesting market. By some measures, it's one of the largest crypto markets in, in APEX, probably the largest one in East Asia in absolute terms. It's interesting because we see really the vast majority of activity there, 
channeled through centralized exchanges, which does suggest to us a high level of trust in these platforms. And it makes for an interesting counterpoint to markets like Hong Kong or Singapore, which are city-states with really smaller markets just constrained by population size. But there you see, in contrast with Korea, like relatively high levels of DeFi engagement. And maybe that comes down to the sophistication of the user base. Maybe it comes down to something um, else around the availability of onshore exchanges. But it's quite interesting to see like different markets at sort of similar stages of economic development with quite different structural characteristics in terms of where and how like the populations engage with crypto. Let's rewind back a little bit. We skipped over your bio at the top of the conversation, but before joining Chainalysis just three months ago, you were with the Monetary Authority in Singapore. So you've you know shifted from policymaking into the heart of the, the crypto ecosystem here with us. I'm curious if you can share, you know, as much as you're comfortable, like perspective that you had, you know, from the inside on the policymaker side. Because I think as an outsider, Singapore, there's been kind of a complex history with digital assets over the years that's been at times sort of full tilt adoption, very positive on the topic to, you know, less warm, maybe in reaction to some of the, you know, illicit activity or, or some of the fraud that we've seen in recent years. But I, I'd love any sort of insider perspective you might be able to share. So I don't think this is a matter of insider perspective. Actually, when I think back about the trajectory of, of Singapore and its policy around digital assets, I don't think there's necessarily as much inconsistency as one would think from the outside. I think we saw the Monetary Authority of Singapore warning retail consumers about potential risks of engaging crypto as early as 2017. So that sort of caution around consumer participation in areas where risks are high and may not always be easily understood, I think that's been relatively consistent. Of course, just as with all countries in APAC, I think there is sort of the need to balance between risk management on the one hand and exploring the innovative potential of a new technology and considering what it might yield in terms of economic activity, value added, and jobs and growth. Like the emphasis that a policymaker would put on each of these limbs of that tension is obviously going to be shaped by, you know, the circumstances, the development of the market and the market So I would say like maybe some parts of this balance between risk management and and growth would be more prominent at one point than the other. But I don't think that fundamentally there is an inconsistency uh, in the overall narrative and the overall priorities. That's a great point. The other market that has been making news lately is Hong Kong, because I, from what I gather, again, as uh, the not expert between the two of us, Hong Kong was looking like it would be, you know, a near full ban of digital assets at one point in time had been friendly to digital asset businesses. And then we saw a number of them potentially relocate out of the country. And it seems like from what I've read in the news, a near complete reversal of that policy and, and attempting to welcome everyone back. Give us the the nuance under the headlines that I've been following. (laughs) A lot of attention in Hong Kong and certainly a lot of headlines, which are generating a lot of optimism in the industry. I think we have seen a lot of high level, very positive rhetoric coming out of Hong Kong. We've seen some quite broad based initiatives around different parts of the digital asset ecosystem. The green bond that the Hong Kong Monetary Authority issued on behalf of the the Hong Kong government recently, that was a tokenized green bond. So some of 
this like really interesting stuff. Can you talk a little bit about what that is, the green bond? I'm not sure we've covered it on the show before. Oh, right. What happened earlier this year is that the Hong Kong government issued essentially a, a tokenized bond. So this was a green bond. And the whole idea of this project was to think about asset tokenization, really, and to potentially lay a, a blueprint for more corporate bond issuances that are tokenized. So what we're really looking forward to there, so there's been a bond, it's been issued. The idea is that it's sort of digitally native and then it resides on the blockchain through the entire life cycle. So you've got like sort of coupons that are paid out uh, and you've got smart contract technology there that's like sort of enabling that. And the idea there is that you have a lot of efficiency gains potentially. You've got even in the primary issuance stage, uh, shorter settlement timeframes. I think some of this has come up before uh, in, in conversations in public key around asset tokenization and what yeah. some of the efficiency gains there might be. But what we're really looking for forward to seeing, at least within the policy team, is the white paper that the Hong Kong Monetary Authority is going to put out to set out the key learnings and conclusions of their project. Because there is going to be a need for that white paper to deal with questions like, you know, how does this fit in with existing legal frameworks? How does this gel with the existing market structure and settlement infrastructure and the role of the central securities depository? And I think that white paper is going to offer a sense of the level of ambition of the Hong Kong Authority. And, and like how far reaching they think that DLT and blockchain can be in terms of reshaping financial market infrastructure. It's fascinating to watch these projects kind of independently spring up all around the world. Like Israel is doing something very similar right now. There's a number of other countries that seem to be trying to tackle the same problem. In Hong Kong with the green bond, did they issue it on a public blockchain or do they have a private ledger that they're, they're doing this on? It's a private ledger. That's where most of these projects are. I think I'm going to get really excited about it when it's on Ethereum or another chain and denominated in in like the native token of the chain. Like that seems like it'll be material progress. But nonetheless, this is exciting. I'm curious in terms of policymaker reaction to the fallout of last year. Like my sense here in the US is that people are really just starting to come to grips with things that for people who are in the crypto ecosystem feel like they happened a decade ago. You know, like the, the Terra Luna collapse of a year ago is really just starting to be almost digested in the U.S. kind of policymaker and regulator circles as they start to, you know, even formulate what is a stable coin and how do we think about how this fits into the various financial instruments that we have oversight around. What is your sense? Who's on the forefront of regulator or policymaker reaction to some of the missteps that we saw last year and who's maybe not yet picked up the ball? That's a really good question. And it's a really good question because APAC is such a broad region that there are so many markets to pick from. But I think one important thing to keep in mind is that actually some of the jurisdictions in APAC were front runners in trying to grapple with some of the risks that reside in the digital asset market well ahead of Terra Luna. So I think Japan is probably a clear example. So they put in place some quite strict regulations on digital asset businesses in the wake of the Mt. Gox hack, including around things like segregation and protection of customer assets. And this relatively stringent standard really helped the domestic market absorb some of the shock of the turbulent events of last year with Japanese customers being a little bit unique in their ability to withdraw assets held with FTX Japan reportedly. And, and of course, this is remarkable because now it puts Japanese policymakers in a sound position to drive the growth and innovation agenda around Web3 in a concerted way, while you know maybe some other authorities in the region are still in the process of putting in place some of those pillars of a a broader-based regulatory framework to address the risks that we saw in 2022. 
We had the CEO of an exchange from Malaysia, MX Global, on the show recently. And it was fascinating to hear that in that market, they don't have this debate that we have raging in the US right now about our digital assets, commodities, or securities. They've just blanket, they're all securities. And the exchanges who want to list them have to file you know, the equivalent of a securities listing document in order to make them tradable. And so they're putting the risk management back on the exchange rather than saying the exchange is kind of of a neutral third party, which I thought was a novel approach to it. I mean, there's definitely some downside in that it's difficult to get new tokens listed or bring on potentially new protocols or new chains, but maybe that's good for consumer protection, like slowing things down just a little bit, as opposed to having, you know, the latest incarnation of the Pepe token suddenly available (laughs) for trade across everyone. I thought that was really interesting. (laughs) You're right in that uh, one of the challenges with, you know, crypto is that it just in a way goes at the speed of light, right? The pace of innovation, the pace of market activity is so fast that it's almost difficult for regulators to keep up. And that's kind of the challenge. Like, how do you make a regulatory framework that's fit for purpose, that's sort of able to, you know, stay relevant uh, through innovation cycles, or at least through a legislative cycle, and yet be able to be sufficiently comprehensive that you address all the, all the key risks? APAC regulators has not necessarily been to lump everything into the category of securities. So there are definitions around things like digital payment tokens in Singapore, virtual assets in Hong Kong that do make clear that, you know, they're not necessarily the same as securities. But to borrow, I suppose, a lot of the principles from securities regulation and try to then adapt or impose them uh, in the digital asset space. And that kind of has a similar effect. Now, I think you were just in Japan recently around the most recent FATF meeting. Anything you can share there in terms of what's going on with the Financial Action Task Force and digital assets? Like, what can we expect next out of that that organizing body? Well, I mean, so the Financial Action Task Force is really the global standard setter for AML CFT standards. We attended the virtual asset contact group meeting of the Financial Action Task Force, which is a a regular engagement session between the public and the private sector. So I think there, the strong takeaway that we got was really around the need for countries to step up implementation of AML CFT standards for the virtual asset sector. And if you think about sort of the overall trajectory of digital asset regulation. It really all started with a focus several years ago on illicit finance. So the use of virtual assets for money laundering and terrorism financing. And I think this is still a priority concern, certainly on the part of the Financial Action Task Force, but just more broadly. I think the high profile emerging risks in this space that even the Financial Action Task Force has highlighted are things like the abuse of virtual assets for sanctions evasion, proliferation financing, including things like, you know, North Korean and hacks and money laundering. So given the regional nexus, of course, this is very topical for APAC. So a lot of the exhortation from the Financial Action Task Force is for countries to really step up implementation of the standards that were set some time back and to really, really make sure that those rules are enforced on the ground. And I think we are seeing that translate into some momentum in APAC. Most markets in the jurisdiction already have some form of AML CFT regulatory frameworks in place, and those are now being enhanced to meet international standards. 
So Japan, for instance, recently conducted a consultation on implementation of the travel rule for virtual assets. That's you know quite an important measure that mandates the exchange of originator and beneficiary information for sanctioned screening and other purposes. And then more recently, Austrac in Australia launched a consultation on the modernization of Australia's AML CFT regime, and that includes you know extending the scope of AML regulation to cover a broader range of digital asset players. So really a lot of, I would say, regulatory momentum still on that old nugget, the AML CFT space. Is the biggest gap in implementation really around travel rule? Or are there other pieces of the AML directives that VATF sees as lacking in major markets? So I think the travel rule is is part of it because the travel rule is, is of course, really crucial for things like sanction screening, like we mentioned earlier. But I don't think it's just the travel rule. So the FATF does put out these periodic updates on, on implementation progress. Um, I think one other thing that we've seen where implementation is maybe not as fast as uh, the FATF would like is around things like risk assessments, which are, of course, the basic building block of an AML CFT regime. So like national risk assessments, assessments, the implementation of a risk-based AML-CFT framework for virtual assets. These are areas in which I think progress is is mixed, it's patchy. There are countries that are a little bit further ahead than others. I think this is something I've heard from regulators in a few different countries is, you know, it's necessary that you have transaction monitoring or a correctly capture customer identity at account registration and verify that periodically. But that's not sufficient to meet the obligations under the standard. And so the risk based approach where you have your own process of evaluation, you're not just taking sort of a vendor's flag of yes or no as the the complete answer. It seems like a point of maturation of the digital assets industry relative to, say, some of the banks that have been doing this for a little bit longer. That's a trend that I've heard quite a bit about. Going back to the travel rule, it seems like that's going to be really difficult to get started. I think people call it the the sunrise problem of... I mean, it sounds like a happy problem, right? But it, it, Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, yeah. Everybody <laughs> loves a sunrise. So... But, but this idea of, you know, this exchange of information where we're identifying the beneficiary or the recipient of transacted funds on nearly every transaction, it requires quite a lot of infrastructure in order to do that in a way that, you know, takes into account privacy concerns. And obviously, you wouldn't want that database, you know, suddenly being available to the North Korean hackers you mentioned earlier, right? That would be a treasure <laughs> trove of information. So it's a, it's a technically complex problem, and it requires that kind of everybody participating in the ecosystem system, which is a large number of entities, be operating in it before I think travel rule really has the impact that's hoped for. Was this discussed at all in the meeting that you attended? Is there a perspective on how we get over the sunrise problem? It's an issue that the FEDF has flagged. There are various challenges, I think, associated with global implementation of the travel rule. There are challenges that are technological in nature. So how do you actually exchange the data? What standards do you use? Insofar as different travel rule solutions, providers have emerged to what extent, you know, are different solutions interoperable? These are challenges that I think, you know, the industry as a whole continues to discuss on an ongoing basis because they're difficult challenges. At the heart of the sunrise, 
sunrise rule is the problem that some countries have rolled out travel rule requirements and others haven't. And sometimes those requirements are slightly different in a way that makes it a little bit more challenging for a digital asset player that is global to comply. One big part of the solution is really for all jurisdictions to, to just move forward with rolling out their AML CFT regimes and putting in place something similar to a travel rule. I mean, yeah. that's the only way to get around uh, the sunrise <laughs> problem, really, at the end of the day. You know, it'll still be a bumpy road just because rules are never consistent 100% across all jurisdictions. If you have a, at least a base of that in place, that provides a, you know, a basis for moving forward. Yeah, I was just in Canada two weeks ago, and I think the Canadian regime on this is a bit more stringent than the even the FATF requirement. I think it's all transactions, like regardless of value or something approximating that. I was asking how they're dealing with cross-border or, or sort of international payments where their obligation in Canada is different than the, the counterparty's obligation in, say, the UK. And what does that mean for implementation of the travel rule? Does one party send information and the other party not because of the thresholding? There was no good answer. So we're going to go through a period where I think everybody adopts some sort of a travel rule solution and then they, they start to normalize the patchwork quilt. Yeah, the challenge of inconsistencies in rules across jurisdictions, it's definitely not ideal, but it is something that is as old as time, right? Or at least it's as old as global finance and national regulation. So there's always going to be these frictions around the edges. But if you can get like sort of the fundamentals harmonized or at least consistent across jurisdictions, it makes things a lot easier for global players. Yeah. I'm curious about consumer protection because I feel like this is really the area where the legal frameworks, the regulatory regimes probably had the most impactful negative gap in this last cycle, right? We had lots of people who had money they probably you know, realistically couldn't afford to lose invested into digital assets. They probably, in many cases, didn't fully understand what they were investing in, or maybe you know, were led to believe one thing when, in fact, it was a very different thing that they had money in. Like what comes to mind is you know the interest rate offered by Anchor Protocol and the Terra Luna ecosystem and the sustainability of that over time. I know a lot of people are just sort of chasing these twenty percent APR type rates, <laughs> and I try and contrast that to you know any of my interactions with traditional finance, where the simplest of transactions I get. A 50 page booklet of disclaimers and legal sounding warnings that I might lose my money. Where do you see your work being done on the on the consumer protection side that might might keep us from falling into that situation again in the future? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. It's a really good one. And it's an interesting topic because I think we've seen different approaches emerge around consumer protection in APAC. So I think early last year, we saw guidance or restrictions coming out around marketing. So we saw, for instance, in, in Singapore, the MAS putting out some guidance restricting the marketing of crypto to the general public. In Thailand, I think in September, the Thai Securities and Exchange Commission also put out their own set of advertising restrictions. So a lot around marketing, but then increasingly, I think what we're seeing now is things like suitability due diligence requirements. So things like customer knowledge assessments, retail investment limits, and these are really drawing from the playbook on investor protection in traditional finance. They're very similar to the kind of 
guardrails in place when you invest in, in you know, a traditional investment product. I think we've seen this in the Hong Kong regime, in the Singapore uh, proposals that came out last October, and we'll probably see it continue to come up in other APAC markets. Sorry, a customer knowledge assessment. So I have to take a test to buy some crypto? Is that the idea? Don't you have to take a test to buy some securities? No, I mean, not in the United States. I've never experienced that. On one hand, I kind of really like this idea, right? In the US, we have this accredited investor rule, which I'm not fond of because it's really just a means test. You have to have a certain amount of liquid asset value effectively. And so it, it sort of excludes people who might be younger and earlier in their career, like fully capable of wanting to invest and being financially capable of doing so, but they may not be at the scale that meets this means test. Therefore, they get excluded from buying equity in privately held companies, which is just ridiculous to me. As somebody that's worked in startups my whole life, like you can go to work at a startup and be paid in options, but you can't buy options in another <laughs> company unless you meet this accredited investor threshold. And so it's not really validating that I understand anything about how the company works or the nature of the structure of the agreement that I'm purchasing equity in a company. Like all these things are largely ignored. It's just like, well, do you have enough money? And if you have enough money, therefore you're assumed to be qualified to participate. I kind of like this knowledge test, but now I'm really curious if we should get a copy of this and link to it in the show <laughs> so people can go take it and see if they can pass. I don't think these have all been developed because I don't I don't think the rules are, are necessarily all in force yet. But, you know, it's not necessarily exclusionary. Like there are different ways that you can think about slicing this, right? Like if somebody yeah. doesn't have sufficient knowledge, maybe what they need is financial advice around the product. So they just need to be guided a little bit more around what the risks are. So I think this is a space in which like it really is where as a regulator or as an industry player, you can be fairly creative in how you yeah. want to do this. And of course, the other the other limb to this is consumer education. Can't really test someone on something without, without providing sufficient material for them to understand the investment product. And I think like one really interesting thing here is, is Thai Securities Exchange Commission in in January put out uh, essentially a crypto academy. So that's amazing. Available I... material to teach you about crypto. I mean, what's so I have to say, I, I don't speak Thai, so I haven't actually gone through the educational materials, but it sounds to me like a, like an interesting approach to the matter. We can get one of the um, machine learning language translation platforms. We should dig into the oh, test. Yeah. We, could, we could take it together. The other thing I'm hearing a lot about is the conversation around market integrity, which in digital assets is such an interesting thing. I mean, we've certainly done analysis in like the space of NFTs and looked at some of the wash trading activity that's mm -hmm. certain of the marketplaces kind of encourage based on the tokenomics of the platform fees. And I think there's any of the rug pull scams you could categorize in this like market integrity, market manipulation problem space. I would also say that I think there's a lot of uncertainty across the digital assets ecosystem about is market manipulation actually a bad thing or a good thing? In some ways, it's, it's part of the culture of crypto is get people excited about, we were talking about the Pepe <laughs> token earlier. And you do this sort of broad-based marketing and people get enthusiastic and it, it almost evolves the ecosystem in ways that could be interesting and popular. How are people trying to think about market integrity? Is there is there anything interesting happening in that space? 
So I would say that in some of the regulatory frameworks that we're seeing emerge, there is attention paid to market integrity. And these are mostly in the form of obligations to kind of try to detect front-running market manipulation, wash trading. So market abuse, essentially, is so a detect and prevent. But I think this is like a really complicated topic, right? And just setting aside the question of whether this is this is a, an integral part of the crypto ecosystem and the crypto thesis. I think what you pointed to is a really interesting question because there is sort of the abuse that takes place and that is visible on chain, which is a lot of the analysis that we've been doing around things like pump and dump tokens and NFT wash trading. And, and then there are there is the type of market abuse that can take place within centralized exchanges, like on order books. And I, I think a really interesting question is like, you know, for regulators, how do you get, make sure that you have adequate sight of both so that you can investigate and take action against illicit actors. Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating space to to try and get your arms around because the means of communication is so different, right? I mean, if we think about the reach of a platform like Twitter or the private nature of broad communication via a tool like Discord, where yeah. you can reach tens of thousands or you know, hundreds of thousands of people in a Discord channel that is not viewable by a regulator, right? They may yeah. not have access to it or even know it exists, yet you can likely move the value of an asset pretty dramatically by engaging you know a widespread group of people who by the way are, are likely not all in the same country right they could be globally distributed so outside of jurisdictional authority of a regulator in some ways it's very hard for me to imagine a clean solution that solves for that that type of problem no, but I think it's a fascinating question, and it's really something that's not isolated to crypto or the digital asset space, right? You can see this happening in traditional equities as well. And I guess the question really is around what are the new tools that supervisors need in order to be able to even monitor and identify shady activity that's taking place in channels that are not traditionally within their purview, right? And yeah, I think that speaks to sort of the evolving role and the evolving skill set toolbox of regulators and supervisors, which I find really interesting. And I think like at least within the crypto and the digital asset space, given the tools that we have around, you know, on-chain analytics, it's going to be interesting to see how supervisors increasingly harness on-chain data and other data sources and other new, new supervisory tools to get their arms around the different forms of uh, market abuse and, and consumer harm that can occur in this more technologically enabled space. Let's shift to a positive topic as we as we come to the end of our conversation today. So in the news recently, I've read about a number of you know, well-known large crypto businesses exiting certain markets. We've seen this happen in Canada. I think Japan has seen this happen with a couple of the large exchanges that were not domestically based, but international, you know, shuttering their, their operations in the country. And at least the news level analysis was it was largely down to the complexity or difficulty to meet either the coming or, or now current regulatory regime, which seems unfortunate on the face of it. But I'm actually curious on the, the other end of the spectrum, where do you see government with enthusiasm around digital assets and, and actually supporting some of the in innovation that's happening in the space and kind of embracing the future? Is is there anywhere that's doing that right now? Oh, absolutely. But maybe just to touch on what you mentioned earlier, Ian, about firms exiting spaces where regulatory requirements 
sense, may be onerous. I think coming back to Hong Kong, you were asking yeah. earlier about you know the all the hype around Hong Kong and what's the nuance on the ground. I think the reality on the ground is that Hong Kong has in place, or at least it's announced that it will have in place, regulatory regime that is fairly comprehensive and fairly granular, and that sets in a way a high watermark for crypto companies. And and so far that hasn't dented the interest in in going onshore in Hong Kong, getting a license. And I think there are industry players that look for a rigorous regime where the license is essentially, you know, carries a premium. So I don't think that having a stringent regime in place necessarily is going to drive away activity, provided that, you know, the regulator is willing to engage with industry operationally, the licensing process can progress, and there's clarity essentially over where regulation is heading. I I thought that was an interesting counterpoint. Then just coming back to this question of uh, whether APEC governments are doing anything proactive still to support digital asset innovation I think yes the pipeline of pro-innovation initiatives hasn't hasn't stopped although I do think that maybe now more than ever policymakers and central banks and regulators are going to be focusing on initiatives that steer clear of anything that might be seen as encouraging speculative trading in digital assets so I think there are a couple of themes I think you know the blockchain as infrastructure thesis is still very prominent in a lot of these policy initiatives that we're seeing get rolled out we talked about Hong Kong and their issuance of a tokenized government green bond. But I think even in South Korea, authorities recently rolled out a package of measures to enable the issuance and trading of tokenized securities. Oh, um, interesting. I didn't yeah. see that news, actually. That's a big deal. Yeah. So it includes planned act amendments to enable legal recognition for securities issued on chain under certain conditions. And this is really aimed at, I think, making capital markets more efficient and unlocking liquidity in illiquid assets. The good thing there, I think, is that when they rolled out their measures, it's really, you know, looking beyond just the issuance of a security on chain and thinking hard about secondary trading or like distribution of the security, what sorts of platforms you need for that. So I thought that's pretty heartening. I think the other theme here is probably around Web3. So we talked about how Japan has had in place fairly stringent rules for digital asset players and that positioned it well to drive pro-innovation initiatives. The governing party, the Liberal Democratic Party, has a Web3 project team that comprises of parliamentarians and lawyers, and that consults directly with the industry to try to formulate proposals to position Japan as a hub of Web3 activity. So there's no qualms, like completely unequivocal about that ambition. And they've put out a couple of white papers. The latest one has a range of proposals around things like a legal structure for DAOs, streamlining of taxation. In a previous paper, they put out a bunch of proposals around NFT so certainly there there still is quite a lot of policy work around driving innovation and growth and digital assets in, in APAC. It's just potentially a little bit more selective in some quarters. That's great. The work in Japan around the Web3 space is fascinating too, because it sounds like that's more focused on the non-financial aspects of digital assets, right? Setting up a legal framework for decentralized autonomous organizations. Like that's independent of, can I go buy more Pepe coin or or speculate (laughs) on on the latest token? Same thing with NFTs, right? Looking at digital art as opposed to speculative financial instruments. So that's heartening to see. I guess last question, and then we'll wrap up here is if you were running a digital asset business, what would you be doing right now from a, just to prepare for the future regulatory landscape? 
Uh, that is a great question, and I'm glad that I get to deliver a response from, from my side of the table. I think, you know, look, 2023 is going to be a bit of an inflection point in terms of all the regulation that is under consideration and going to come into force through the course of the year in different markets. So I think if I were an APEC-based digital asset player, I would be looking hard at the re regulatory momentum in my market and thinking seriously about how to engage with with regulators to shape the rules that are coming out because this is going to be a pivotal year. Amazing. Great advice. Chengi, this was such a fun conversation. I learned a ton. Hopefully our listeners did as well. Thank you for joining us today. This is great. Thank you so much for having me, Ian. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode. Our team's been working hard to make our content available on all the major social platforms. So right now, take out your phone, head to your favorite social media platform. You can subscribe to our new TikTok, our revamped YouTube. You can sign up for our LinkedIn newsletter. And of course, follow us on Twitter or Telegram. Just search for at Chainalysis. And if you enjoyed our conversation today, you might be interested to know that last week, South Korea's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, MOFA, sanctioned Kim Suki, a North Korean and hacking group and included two cryptocurrency addresses as identifiers for the organization. Additionally, the MOFA collaborated with South Korea's National Intelligence Service and National Police Agency, as well as the US FBI, Department of State, and the National Security Agency to issue a joint advisory related to North Korean cyber espionage activities. Go ahead, check out the link in the show notes to our blog that explains who Kim Suki is and get an analysis of their crypto activity, which involved transactions with both mainstream exchanges and mining pools as part of their laundering activities.